If you've got a Bible um, with you this morning, we're actually back in the book of 1 Corinthians. Eventually, we've got there. And we're going to be looking at um, part of chapter 9 this morning. So we're on page 1086, reading from verse 19 through to verse 27. Though I am free and belong to no one, I have made myself a slave to everyone, to win as many as possible. To the Jews I become like a Jew to win the Jews. To those under the law I became like one under the law, though I myself am not under the law, so as to win those who are under the law. To those not having the law I became like one not having the law, though I am not free from God's law but am under Christ's law, so as to win those not having the law. To the weak I became weak to win the weak. I have become all things to all people so that by all possible means I might save some. I do all this for the sake of the gospel that I may share in its blessings. Do you not know that in a race all the runners run but only one gets the prize? Run in such a way as to get the prize. Everyone who competes in the games goes into strict training. They do it to get a crown that will not last but we do it to get a crown that will last forever. Therefore, I do not run like someone running aimlessly. I do not fight like a boxer beating the air. No, I strike a blow to my body and make it my slave, so that after I have preached to others, I myself will not be disqualified for the prize. Let's pray again. Dear Lord, we thank you for the power that is in your word. Thank you that this is your word to us this morning. Give us open hearts, we pray. Hearts that are willing to be changed and transformed by your Spirit. So Holy Spirit, open these words to us, we ask. In Jesus' name. Amen. Tom, if you could have the the next PowerPoint up. General election is in full swing. Are we enjoying it? Is anybody enjoying it? Peter's enjoying it. So... I thought we'd start with a quiz this morning to see who can remember the general election slogans of the three main parties that will be standing around here. Here we go, they're all blanked out for you. So we'll go in alphabetical order. Conservative. Strong and stable. Keep going. Leadership. There's another bit. Anyone? In the national interest. Okay. Labour. (laughs) I'm not making any political comments for the many not the few full marks over there liberal democrat liberal democrat anyone nobody changing Britain's future So now you know. Couldn't fit UKIP and the Green Party on there, so apologies to anybody who's members of those parties for not being totally non-partisan this morning. But slogans, political slogans, are meant to get a message out, aren't they? They're meant to summarise what a party stands for. But you start to read those and you think, actually, do any of them actually mean anything? Change Britain's future. You know, if I was Prime Minister, I could change Britain's future, but it might not be for the better. For the many, not the few. Who are the many? Who are the few? We can't answer that without knowing a bit more of the context. Strong and stable leadership. Well, we might have some idea of what 
Theresa May thinks that means. But what about the national interest? Who decides what the national interest is? Who is the jury of the national interest? And so you get these things that will be repeated time and time and time after again. And I think one of the, one of the national newspapers is now playing a game called Theresa May Bingo, where what you do is you get a scorecard and you write down how many times in an interview she says strong, stable, and leadership. And then as, if you're with a group of people, the one who gets the most ticks wins. It's a great game. But a good slogan, and not just politically, but in any way, is something that actually manages to summarize what a message is all about. I'll leave it up to you whether you think those summarize it. Summarize what a message is all about. You know, getting a core message across can be really tough, can't it? Distilling down what we think we're on about. You may be thinking, well, 1 Corinthians chapter 9, the verses we've read, is not about slogans. But it is about a core message. It is about what is on Paul's heart for the church in Corinth. And if you do want a slogan, if slogans are things that, that really sort of help you, how about this from verse 23? I do all this for the sake of the gospel. If you forget the rest of the passage, but remember that this morning, we'll have got something out of this passage. I do all this for the sake of the gospel. Paul's living, Paul's sharing the way he conducts himself around different groups of people is for one core thing, and that is the gospel of Jesus Christ. The good news that Jesus, the Son of God, the Messiah, God himself, came to the earth, lived a perfect life, died on Calvary for the sins of the world, rose again, ascended to glory, and will return. And that he offers us, when we follow him, forgiveness and eternal life. For Paul, everything will be for the sake of of the gospel for the sake of that message. And what Paul does in other ways is, in a sense, secondary. Look at verse 19. Though I am free and belong to no one, I have made myself a slave to everyone to win as many as possible. Christ has freed Paul. Paul is free from sin. He's under grace. He's free from the law. But freedom isn't freedom to sin. It's not license to do whatever he wants. But nor is it licensed just to sit back and relax into the blessings of God? This week's actually been quite nice weather, hasn't it, for most of it? Apart from the day it rained. Was that yesterday or the day before? I can't remember. But during the week, um, Claire and I walked round the dam, Lim Dam, one lunchtime. And it was nice and warm. And when it's warm round the dam, the fish go sunbathing. I don't know if you've ever seen them. They start doing this in the middle of the lake. And you see this big shoal of a great big carp sunbathing. I don't know whether they get a tan carp, I'm not quite sure, but they're there. And they're basking in the warm, enjoying the sunlight. But I think sometimes as Christians, you know, we can, uh, we can adopt a basking mentality. We can think, well, I'm saved. I've got a relationship with God. I've got all the blessings that come from knowing God. I will just sit back and bask and look after myself and look after all those things that are blessings that God has given us. Now, yes, the Christian life needs to be full of all that. It needs to be full of joy. It needs to be full of celebration. It needs to be full of the blessings of God. But you know, we are commissioned. We're commissioned to be on mission. God's people, and we've said this time and time again through this book, are always a sent people. We're never called just to sit back and enjoy the blessings without responding to that call of God 
to go. I have made myself a slave to everyone to win as many as possible, Paul says. It's interesting there. Paul uses two terms, slave and everyone. He's a slave to other people for reaching them with the gospel. He gives himself over to other people. And to everyone, it's to the whole world. Nobody, to Paul, is outside of the hope that Jesus brings. Now, some people have read this passage and think, well, Paul is having a bit of an identity crisis here. He's got a bit of a problem because actually he's, he's saying, I can be a, a Jew to a Jew, a Gentile to a Gentile. And he's put down all these things that were in, in his past and he's actually having a bit of a crisis. Other people have said, well, he's a bit like a salesman who will change the product depending on who he's selling it to, to make it sellable and will twist and turn and do all these kinds of different things. But I would say Paul is not being either of those things. But rather it's this. Paul, in Jesus, in the good news of the gospel, has found something that is far more precious than his own previous identity. Something that is far more important than his past, than who he thought he was. Something that is so amazing that he will go to whatever lengths he can do to get this message out there to get this message across. So if he's sharing with Jews, he will live under the law. He will live in the way they do, so that his message can cut through to that community. Even though he himself, he says he's not under it. He says in Romans 6, verse 14, you are not under law, but under grace. But living under law means that he can relate to Jews, means he can get alongside that group of people. Verse 21, to those Gentiles not under the law, he would live like they do, Although he's quick to highlight, actually, he's still under Christ's law, under God's law through what Christ has told him. Doesn't expand on that at this point, but if you read the book of Corinthians right the way through, by the time you get to chapter 13 and it talks about love and the primacy of love, we get a strong hint of what Paul believes Christ's law is, about loving, about having God's law written on our hearts. To the weak, he becomes weak. We don't know who the weak are, he doesn't tell us. It could be the physically weak, it could be those in poverty, it could be the weak of conscience who he'd been talking about in previous chapters when he was talking about those who were struggling with meat sacrificed to idols. But Paul's point is simply this. Providing he is living in a Christ-like way, providing he is not doing anything that compromises his faith in Jesus, he will become culturally the same as other people to reach them. Providing he's not compromised, he will reach out into other people's culture. What they eat, the music they like, the buildings they meet in, that is all the stuff of culture. Yet how often do we get culture in front of the gospel? How often do we flip that and get things the other way around? You know, culture is different, different places you go, isn't it? When we go um, sometimes over to see Claire's mum and dad in Florida, we have to abide to a strict dress code in the church. That's the, the acceptable way. So we've led worship in their church, and I have to put a tie on. I can never see the sense in ties, but anyway, I put a tie on. Claire has to wear a dress that comes down to about somewhere down there. That's just the culture. That's what is acceptable in that setting. Let's put this into a 21st century context. What, what does this mean for us today? You know, our call as individuals, as a church, is to share Jesus. But how often do we get so caught in our own church culture, our own way of doing things, that we can't get the message out there? 
<clears throat> that we can't relate to the people who we're trying to reach. Michael Green, those of you who've been a Christian for a while, that name will probably ring bells. Um, he wrote back in 1982, so this is 35 years ago, when the church in the UK was double the size that it is now, he wrote this, and I think there's something really poignant and even prophetic about what he says. He says, Paul would not have tolerated the middle-class captivity of the church in the Western world. He would have been active in evangelizing to drug addicts as well as to undergraduates. He would have been as much at home taking Christ into the pub, into the bar, into the open air, as he would of sharing Christ at the dinner party. Something really poignant about what he says there. And this is Paul's point here. The good news has to be shared in the context of the people we're trying to reach. Has to be shared. Otherwise we miss people and we don't communicate properly. So I want you to think about two things from this first part of this passage. Is your faith, is my faith, so wrapped up in church culture in the things that we do on a Sunday, in the things that we do during the week as a church, that we actually can't see past it to reach other people for Jesus. You know, just this week, me and Claire have been talking about how we live in quite a cushioned sort of Christian world. You know, I work here in the church. Claire works for a Christian charity. We live behind a church. It's not really surprising. We feel a bit like this. But actually, that is not a good thing because we're not reaching the people that we're called to reach. The people who we spend time with regularly hear the gospel. How do we actually make a difference and step out of that bubble to do those things that God is calling us to do? You know, our mission in church can so easily be, let's find more people who are like us to rejuvenate what we already have, self-perpetuate the kind of thing that we're already doing. Our giving, if we're not careful, our financial giving can be more to do with philanthropy and trying to give to a whole load of good causes, rather than to think, actually, what is kingdom business? What is God calling me to give so that the message of the good news can get out there? Our spirituality can be more about our own wholeness. Now, there's nothing wrong with that, and we'll come to that in a minute. But more about that, more about looking after ourselves and thinking that we're fed and we're okay, rather than actually reaching out with the good news. And in the end of the day, we can end up being like one of those carp in the dam basking away in the sunlight of the gospel, thoroughly enjoying ourselves, but actually not being very active and not getting very far. And we're just there, fins going in the breeze. Is God calling you? Is he calling me to realise that actually the gospel needs to be sent? We need to go, not just bask. Second thing, as a church, as individuals, are we nimble on our feet in terms of our culture? I was reading a a Facebook blog um, this week and the person writing it was talking about how churches struggle to reach those in their 20s and 30s. And that the writer was saying, churches that do successfully manage to reach into those age groups are those that will quickly change the culture if things aren't working. Will quickly ditch things, just cultural things, not the gospel message, but just cultural stuff that is of no consequence. Are we as a church, are we as individuals, are we like Paul? Will we change our culture if it means we can reach out and save people? Or do we just want to self-perpetuate and find more people just like us? Perhaps today you're, you're sat here and if you're really honest with yourself, you are basking a bit at the moment. 
You know, you're there, church life is good, you're in a good small group or, or whatever. But actually, there isn't that challenge to go. That's not cutting into your life at the moment. But perhaps you've noticed that actually God is rattling your cage, if you like, and saying, come on, open the door, come out. If that is you this morning, and it may be that God just wants to call you to do something here, it may be that God actually wants to call you somewhere totally else, the other side of the world, to do something. It's important that we listen to the Spirit's prompting. God will always be calling us to go. It might be to our neighbour, it might be 6,000 miles away. That's God's business. Our business is to be obedient. But Paul has another concern. He won't do anything to compromise his faith in order to share Christ. But he's conscious that actually some people in sharing Christ end up losing their own self-discipline. Sorry, I seem to have lost the word there. That should say discipline. In Corinth, um, every two years when Paul was writing this letter, there was um, some games that took place, second only to the Olympic Games. It was the Isthmian Games. And um, athletes from all around the Eastern Mediterranean would come and they would take part, and there'd be races, there'd be um, all kinds of different things going on. And Paul, what he does next is he moves onto an illustration that the church would just instinctively get. We're reading it, we're thinking, why are you starting talking about running and boxing? But this was so into the the mindset of the people who lived there that it's just a sort of natural progression. And so he uses this illustration, and it's about Christians in Corinth calling them to lead self-disciplined Christian lives. They are under grace, they're not under the law, but Paul has already said they are under Christ's law. They are under the law of God that has been written by the Holy Spirit onto our hearts. We're not following the tick list, but we're obeying Jesus. You know, it's hard for us, I think, um, in 21st century Britain, just to realise how hard it was to be a Christian in Corinth. This little church, church of, what, 30, 40 people, in this pagan city of 300,000, with sacrifices going on to all these gods, they have just literally moved from that worldview into a totally unique setting with Jesus Christ as the head of the church. England. When was England converted to Christianity? Anybody like to give me an answer? Bit later. A little bit later. Seventh century. Seventh century. 1300 years ago, or possibly even a little bit more. This country has had Christian witness in it for a millennium and a third. And yet, even so, do you know we have hangovers from the pre Christian age? Things that go right back into, not new paganism, but ancient paganism. Has anyone heard, you may not have heard this very recently, unless you're watching Downton Abbey or something, but you know the phrase, by Jove? Yeah, we've all heard that somewhere or other. Do you know what it means? That's what I always thought, but I learned something new this week. By Jupiter. It's a phrase that goes back to the ancient gods of Rome and has carried on right the way through. How about the phrase, thank your lucky stars? You may hear that. That is another one that goes right the way back to pre-Christian England. If we think we have it tough, the Corinthians had it much worse. All this stuff, all this stuff from their pagan past was piling in on them. And so what Paul does is he talks us through the image of a runner, verse 24, training for a crown that will perish. The crowns that they used to win 
um, with the sort of olive branch crowns. You know, you've probably seen them on films and things. And they would, they would fall apart after a few weeks. But Paul says to the Corinthians, don't run for that kind of crown, but run for something that will last. Something that will last into eternity. Then he moves on in verse 26, and we get another sport. Boxing. Perhaps not something, if you said, is Corinthians about boxing? You'd have probably thought, no, but here we go. Here's a boxing analogy. Boxers in the ancient world didn't have punch bags like boxers today would have to train on. They used to train into thin air. And they'd train into thin air in order to then beat the opponent when there was an opponent in front of them. Paul isn't just training into thin air. He's not training to be um, a self-disciplined Christian just punching the air. Nor is he going to start attacking somebody else. But actually what he's talking about is he's talking about training his own body. Training his own flesh and his own mind. Look at verse 27. He says, no, I strike a blow to my body and make it my slave. We have to be very careful with that verse. This is an illustration. It's a metaphor. There have been some Christians, and you may have heard of them, who have taken this literally and gone into all kinds of horrendous things to do with self-harm to try and purge themselves of sin. That is not what Paul is on about. Then he goes on. So that after I have preached to others, I myself will be not disqualified for the prize. It's actually one of those passages that I don't know about you when you first read it. It's quite difficult to understand, Paul, what are you talking about? What what are you on about here? Well, I want to suggest that what he's talking about here actually links back to what he's been saying above. Paul is passionate about the gospel. He's passionate about Jesus. The gospel is first over his cultural identity. And where it doesn't go against the teachings of Christ, he will put the gospel into whatever context he can. But he's also acutely aware that often those who take the gospel can easily become undone by their own lack of self-discipline. That actually those who are on the front line of Christian mission can actually see their own lives fall apart because they haven't looked after themselves. They haven't taken care of their own spiritual walk. So things like spiritual disciplines of prayer, of Bible reading, of fellowship, can easily go out the window, and the person preaching the gospel can find themselves way ahead with nothing to back up their life. And what easily happens then? Sin starts to creep in. Failure, compromise, starts to come in quickly behind. If you like, we'll stay with the fish analogy this morning, so apologies if you don't like fish. But some Christians are more like this. The leaping salmon. That's a salmon, actually, leaping up the river Bolin in Lim. I didn't take the picture, but apparently that's where it is. Salmon are amazing fish because they leap up waterfalls in order to get back to their spawning grounds. But what salmon can also do is they can leap for so long and for so hard that they get tired out. This is a tired-out salmon, just in case you're wondering what it is. That's been leaping time and time again at a waterfall and can't really move. And sometimes what happens is those salmon that are trying desperately to get back to their spawning grounds will die because of the exertion. They will just keep throwing themselves against the rocks until they batter themselves to pieces. Some Christians, and you may feel that you're like this this morning, can become so worn out, either in sharing Jesus, in doing Christian ministry, involvement in church, or even in other areas of life, that actually they're not looking after themselves. That spiritual discipline 
goes out the window. Sadly, a lot of significant ministries, and we see it in the press, significant revivals that have taken place over recent years have come to a shuddering halt because the leader of that revival or organization has not looked after themselves. And they've ended up having affairs, they've ended up getting involved in financial mismanagement, or their own spiritual life has just ground to a halt. I was talking to um, Phil Jump, the, the regional minister, a couple of weeks ago, and he was saying, because he has to deal with pe- people in ministry who've, who've hit the buffers, who've had a car crash, if you like. And he says often those who have the car crashes, they're not those who are just going along at a slow level, but it's those who are really pushing to get the gospel out there. Because they end up leaping up, but they're not looking after themselves. They're not taking care of the spiritual discipline. Paul tells us to keep our minds, our thoughts, captive to Christ. 2 Corinthians 10, verse 5. We demolish arguments and every pretension that sets itself up against the knowledge of God. And we take captive every thought to make it obedient to Christ. Yeah, we are free. We are free from legalism. But we're still called to be holy. We're free from the bondage of the law. But you can't read the book of 1 Corinthians with its teaching on sexual ethics. You can't read Jesus without thinking that the Christian life is a life of discipline and a life of growth to be more like Christ as the Holy Spirit works in us. You may be here today and you may be nearing burnout. Now, that might be in your your Christian life. It might be in your work life. It might be in your family life. It can happen in all different areas, but the results can be the same. If that's you this morning, can I encourage you to get back on track with those things that will bring you close to God? Get your Bible out. Get praying. Get in fellowship with other people. Ensure that as you're doing, you are supported in those things that God has given us to nourish himself. So what is Paul talking about with this prize? What prize is he after? It's another tricky one. Paul is not talking here about salvation. I think we need to to be clear on that. If if this was about salvation, this would be um, a passage about sort of religion by works or something. You're doing stuff to win God's favour. It's nothing to do with that at all. But what he's talking about is that he's talking about he wants to finish the life of faith with Jesus in a really good way. So here's the words of Jesus saying, my good and my faithful servant. Do you want to finish your life, whenever that is, knowing that you're in the place where God wants you to be? Knowing that through your life you have been the commissioned person, you've been the person who's gone when God has called you, you've been the person who has had that support and that discipline behind you. There are two dangers in this passage. One is you can be a basking carp. The other is you can be a leaping salmon. Paul says we need to be both. Now, I'm not a fisherman, so I was trying to think desperately of a fish that did both, and I failed. (laughs) So if you can think of a fish that does both those things, come and let me know, and I'll email it round to you this week. The call to be a disciple of Jesus is both the call to go, to be on mission, to be commissioned, but it's also the call to take care of ourselves and look after ourselves and make sure we're who we need to be in Christ. If we're all of one and none of the other, we'll either bask out or we'll blow up. There are two dangers. 
What about you? What is God saying to you from this passage? Is the challenge to step up? To be commissioned? To go? To start sharing Jesus? To want to learn how to share Jesus? To be passionate about the gospel in perhaps the way you haven't been? Or is actually the call for you more this morning to think, actually, I may be doing that, but if I'm honest, my personal life isn't where it needs to be. And I need to look after myself. And I need to take care so that I can win that prize and finish my life with Jesus saying, well done, my good and faithful servant. So we end where we started. I do all this for the sake of the gospel. Let's make it our prayer that what we do is all for the sake of Jesus. Let's pray together, shall we? Lord Jesus, I thank you that we are called to follow you. Thank you for the freedom and the joy and the peace that we can have in relationship with you. And I want to pray for for each of us here this morning that whether either of these two scenarios apply to us, Lord, that you'll help us to get that balance right in our lives. I want to pray for us as a church that we will take seriously that call to go. But I want to pray also that you will help us have that, that discipline in our lives that enables us to go forward with that deep relationship with you. So Holy Spirit, we invite you to challenge and convict us, to encourage us, and to move us forward. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.